This morning we come to the end of chapter 4 as we continue to work our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now last week we looked at new life in Christ for the Gentiles and everything that that entailed. And today we're going to go a little bit deeper into the types of behaviors that Paul says should not characterize Christians. So we're going to basically be looking at the importance of holiness today. Now this passage is not simply a list of do's and don'ts. It's a guidebook. It's a way forward for all followers of Jesus to consider as they are pursuing holiness in their relationship with the Lord. So to illustrate this for you, Barna did a study back in 2013 where they asked 1,021 people in an online interview about sin. And I want to share with you the results from that finding. 60% of adults say they are tempted to worry or be anxious. 55% are tempted to eat too much. 35% said they are tempted to spend more money than they can afford. 26% of people are tempted to gossip or say mean things about others. Now, I would guess that that number has ratcheted up significantly with the invention of more social media platforms. So it's probably much closer to like 80% now, if I had to guess. Because remember, this survey was done in 2013. 11% are tempted to go off on somebody by text or email. Maybe that describes you today. 9% are tempted by doing something sexually inappropriate with someone. So that was one part of the study. All these adults basically confessing the sins that they struggle with. But that's not the most interesting aspect of this study. The most interesting part of the study is when the participants were asked why they give in to these temptations. And I want you to listen closely to the responses. 50% of people said they don't know why they give in to temptation. 20% said... They do it to escape or to get away from real life. 20% because they enjoy it. I appreciate the honesty. 8% to feel less pain. 7% to satisfy people's expectations. 2% to take a shortcut to success. 1% said not enough willpower. And 1% said human or sinful nature. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. Only 1% of participants in this 1,021 people that were interviewed said that the reason they sin is because they're sinners. That's a huge problem. 1% of people. The, the automatic answer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, why do you sin? The answer is because you're a sinner. Because I'm a sinner. Because Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, which we talked about many weeks ago, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions and the desires of the body and the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. That's the biblical answer to why we sin. Because that's who we are. But only 1% in this survey 
would actually admit that the reason they sin is because they're sinners. So number one, that's concerning. But number two, 50% of people said they have no idea why they give in to temptation. And that's because we don't talk enough about sin. We don't teach enough about sin, about what the Bible teaches about sin. We don't want to talk about sin. We want to avoid sin because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable or feel bad about themselves. But this book from Genesis to Revelation is a book about human sin, but God restoring people to himself through the work of his son on the cross. You can't talk about the gospel without talking about sin. It is essential to the understanding of Scripture. So today, as we just read, Paul's talking about sin. He's talking about all sorts of sins that should not characterize believers in Jesus Christ. Now notice I said should not. We're not under any illusion this morning that we have all arrived and that we have all completely conquered every single sin that we read about. But as a follower of Jesus, our lives should be primarily characterized by holiness, pursuing holiness, striving to be more like Jesus. Yes, we will fail. Yes, we will need to confess our sin and repent. But as a follower of Jesus, we should at least be striving through the power of the Spirit, to be more like Jesus. So in this section, as Paul closes out chapter 4, it is one of the most organized sections of the entire letter. And I'm going to outline for you how this whole section works. It'll help you understand what Paul's doing. Each exhortation that Paul talks about here has three parts. The negative command, the positive command, and then the reason for that positive command. So every exhortation follows that outline, except for the second one where Paul flips it. And he puts the positive command first, then the negative command, then the why behind it. We all should appreciate what Paul is doing in this passage. Because there's nothing more frustrating than being told to do something without knowing why you should do it. If you're a parent in the room or a child, you've heard this before. Go clean your room. Go cut the grass. Why? Because I said so. Isn't that frustrating? When you were growing up and your parents said that to you, because I said so, that's not a sufficient reason. Well, it actually is because they're your parents, biblically speaking, and you're to obey them. But in your fleshly mind, you're thinking, that's not a good reason. Well, I want you to know that Paul in this passage today is going to give a good reason for every positive command that he gives. He's going to give you the why behind why you should do this specific behavior. So pay attention as we work our way through this passage to the why that Paul gives in each of these exhortations as we work our way through them. So there's going to be five points today. Don't worry, we'll still get out on time. Five points Number one, speak the truth. Number two, be angry and do not sin. Number three, do not steal. Number four, watch your mouth. And then number five, guard your heart. 
speak the truth, be angry and do not sin, do not steal, watch your mouth, and guard your heart. Number one, speak the truth. Look in verse 25. You see, therefore. Every time we see that word, what are we supposed to do? Go back and find out why it's there. So we have to go back and look in verses 17 through 24, which we covered last week, and we see that the therefore here in verse 25 is referring back to the entire section of 17 through 24 that we covered last week. Because of this new life that Paul talked about in 17 through 24, this is the way Christians, Gentile Christians specifically, should act. Almost all of the verbs in this section are imperative verbs. That means they're not suggestions. They're commands. Paul is telling these Gentile Christians in Ephesus, behave this way. Not, I suggest that you behave this way, or I would really like it if you would behave this way. He is saying, do it. That's what imperative verbs imply. Because you are in Christ, Paul says, and have put away falsehood, he says, speak the truth with your neighbor. Now, I want to unpack two types of truth-telling here, because there is a difference. Some of us, myself being one, don't really have a hard time, for the most part, telling the truth. If you come to me and say, hey, I heard you did this, I'll usually confess, I have a guilty conscience. I can't hold things in very long. Yes, I did it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's, that's who I am. I don't have a problem telling the truth most of the time. But there's a different type of truth-telling that's a little bit more challenging. And it's this type of truth-telling, for example. Honey, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> now, I'm not specifically referring to my marriage here. I'm using that as an example for everyone. What do you do? In that moment, it's one thing to confess the truth when you know you've been in the wrong. It's another thing to confess the truth when you know that your potential answer could cause disaster for you. But brothers and sisters, first off, let's just pray that nobody ever asks you that question. But if they do, I'm here to tell you, according to Scripture... We're supposed to be honest. So come up with the most crafty, honest explanation you possibly can in a way that will not hurt anyone's feelings, but we are to be honest. Now, I know what my flesh would tell me to do in that moment. Here's what my flesh would tell me to do. Do whatever you have to do to get out of that conversation as fast as humanly possible. And God will understand if you lie in that moment. I'm joking with you here, but I want you to know that especially in the deep south, in this Christian bubble in some ways that we live in, we will trade the truth for the Christian attribute of kindness. And we will think in our minds, because I said the kind thing, that somehow God will just look away from the lie that I just told someone. That's not how sin works. We, we know this according to Scripture. Your good deeds are not weighed against your bad deeds and you break even. 
So in those moments when somebody asks you for an honest answer and they tell you, I promise it won't hurt my feelings, please tell me the truth, we're actually commanded to give the truth. Because just because we're kind doesn't excuse the lie of whatever we might be about to say to that individual. We can't balance out our sin with good deeds. That's not how it works. When we do that, we begin distorting the gospel. Now, I know what you're thinking, but it's really, really hard to do the right thing. And I don't want to deal with the drama of potential conflict if I actually speak truthfully with this brother or sister. And I get all that. And I've said the same thing myself. I've said the white lie to get out of a hard conversation. We've all done it. But if we look at the why behind this specific exhortation, he says, if we are truly members one of another, then we must speak the truth with our neighbors. Who are the neighbors in this passage? In the context of Ephesians, the neighbors are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The church, this local assembly... Therefore, if we're going to speak the truth to our neighbors within the body of Christ, the implication that Paul is giving here is that you will have the type of relationships with brothers and sisters in this call having thick relationships. And can I tell you in 2022, as the number of people that confess loneliness at an all-time high, how challenging it can be for even brothers and sisters within the context of a local church to have these types of relationships, thick relationships, where if I ask a brother or sister, give me the truth about this or that, they will actually give me the truth. That's hard to do. And thick relationships don't happen when you just skirt in at the last minute and scoot out as soon as the service is over. Thick relationships happen when you're in community with other brothers and sisters. That's kind of what Paul is implying and expecting of the church at Ephesus in that passage. You cannot speak the truth to your neighbors the way you really should unless you know them really well. I would venture that many of you don't have a problem speaking the truth into your spouse's life, your children's life, your grandchildren's life. You're willing to say the difficult thing to those people. Why is that? Because you have thick relationships with them. No matter what, they are in your life and they know that you love them. That exact same type of relationship is expected within the body of Christ. Those are the types of relationships that we should have with each other. Thick relationships. If you don't have those types of relationships, you're missing out on the beauty and the joy of the body of Christ. We need each other. We need to hold one another accountable, rebuke one another, encourage one another. I need you to tell me if my pants are too tight for my body. Okay? You're not going to hurt my feelings. I seriously doubt you'll tell me that, but if you did, hey, I'll take it in stride. Speak the truth to one another in love, even when it hurts. We must have that type of relationship 
with each other. Now, I gave you some examples of very superficial, physical ways that we could have awkward conversations. But think about how this would apply spiritually to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look around the room. Maybe you have noticed you know what, I haven't seen so-and-so here in a few weeks or the last couple of months. I need to call them and ask, where are you? How can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? Many times we don't have those conversations because we don't want the confrontation. We don't want people to speak the truth in love because it means a difficult or a challenging conversation. But Paul makes it very clear to the church at Ephesus and to us that we should speak the truth to one another. Because the body of Christ loves each other enough to do so. So number one, speak the truth. Number two, be angry and do not sin. Be very careful with this one. This is not a license to blow your top every time somebody says something inappropriate or gets mad at you. That's not what Paul is teaching here. It clearly says, be angry and do not sin. Now, we have an example of this from the life of Jesus. When he goes into the temple and he sees things being sold in the marketplace and he flips the tables over of the money changers, what is Jesus mad about in that story? He's mad about the way that his father's house was being treated. He had righteous anger, what we often call righteous indignation, because of the way people were viewing and treating the temple. So on one end, it's okay to be angry when we see injustice. It's okay to be angry when we see unholiness, when we see God being blasphemed or disrespectful. But always remember that you're not Jesus. And so it's going to be a lot more challenging, brothers and sisters, for us to be angry and not sin. It's going to be much more challenging for you and me than it ever was for Jesus. We have to be careful that when we are angry towards injustices that we see or unholiness, that we are only angry at those behaviors and not the people that are exhibiting those behaviors. There's a big difference. I can be angry about what Russia is doing to Ukraine, but I cannot be angry with the people. I cannot hate those people, because those people that are doing those things need the gospel. They need Jesus. So we can be angry about the injustices, but we cannot hate the brothers and sisters that are involved. Yes, I want us to fight for injustice, to fight for holiness, to fight for the name of God, but it takes great spiritual maturity and great prayer for us not to spill over into having hatred for individuals just because they might be exhibiting a specific behavior. Paul says here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You've heard this before. Even people that don't know the Bible know this phrase. This is wise advice. When anger remains in our hearts, it eventually manifests itself in different ways. That might be bitterness, towards people. Or it might mean that eventually you have held that anger in for so long and you will just explode on anybody that comes into your path. Keeping anger inside is a terrible idea. It's a really bad idea to do that. It doesn't mean that our anger is always holy, 
But to not communicate what it is you're feeling is almost always a recipe for disaster. It doesn't mean we can just blow up on anybody, but it also doesn't mean that we should foster anger in our hearts towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when you are angry towards somebody, whether they're a brother and sister in Christ or not, nine times out of ten, the other person is completely unaware that you're angry. It's no skin off their back. It's only hurting you in that moment when you hold angerness and bitterness towards others. What is the why behind this exhortation? Paul gives it to us when he says that the devil will not have a foothold if you stay angry, if you regularly practice unrighteous anger, you are giving the devil ample opportunity for you to give in to temptation and to sin. Do not do that. Brothers and sisters, in your anger, do not sin. Number three, do not steal. Now let's think about the context of this letter. Paul is writing to Gentile Christians when laborers were out of work in Paul's day, there was no welfare system to fall back onto. Not many people had savings accounts with three to six months of expenses covered. So when laborers were out of work in Paul's day, the temptation was to steal. But for a legitimate reason, to be able to provide for one's family. But we know that's not a legitimate reason to steal. Paul is telling these brothers and sisters, do not steal. He says they should be doing honest work with their hands so that stealing would not be necessary. We've been created to work. Two years ago in January of 2020, we kind of worked our way through Genesis and one of the points that we talked about early on in the book of Genesis is that work was not a result of the fall. We were always designed as human beings to work. Adam and Eve were in the garden tending the crops before sin entered into the picture in Genesis chapter 3. Now the consequences of work came after sin entered into the picture. But all human beings have been created to work. Now, there's sometimes legitimate reasons why people can't, but as a general principle, work is biblical. So why do we work, Paul says? What is the why behind do not steal here and work? The why behind it is that so that you can share with the one who is in need. Remember what Paul is saying here. I want all teenagers in the room Young people, maybe even people in college to listen to me. You don't pick a job because you will make a lot of money. That is not a great reason to pick a career. It might be a factor, but you should not make the deciding decision over your career. I want a job that will get me lots of money so that I can stockpile stuff and buy nice cars and a big house and a fancy vacation home so I can spend all this money on myself. Let me just plead with you to run away from that concept. And whoever's teaching it to you, whether it be your teachers at school or your parents, grandparents, whoever it is, hear me say it is not biblical. 
That is not what the Bible teaches about why we work. We work so that we can be generous, so that we can give our money away. If God blesses you with lots of money, praise the Lord. Use it for the glory of God. Don't spend it on yourself. Of course, we have to pay bills and eat. I'm not saying you have to live in a one-room log cabin. But God, especially us as American Christians, we, brothers and sisters, will be held accountable for what we do with our money in a way that no other Christians all around the world will be held accountable. Because God has blessed us financially in ways that he has not blessed other brothers and sisters around the world. And we will be held accountable for what we do with the resources that God has given us. We are to work for the purpose of being generous and sharing what we have with those who need it, and for making the name of Jesus known among the unreached places of the world. That's not what the American dream sells you or tells you, but we are not Americans first, we are Christians first. And we do what the Bible tells us to do with our finances. If there's any part of my life that I'm constantly wrestling with and talking to the Lord about, it's what can I do with the financial resources that God has given me? We will be held accountable, brothers and sisters. Number four, watch your mouth. Now, I use that phrase because that's what my mom and dad used to tell me. I used to pop off, well, not used to. I still pop off at the mouth sometimes. Ashley will tell you that. This fourth exhortation that Paul is talking about here is concerning our speech. And I just summarize it with that phrase, watch your mouth. Paul says, no corrupting talk should come out of your mouths. The structure of this exhortation really should read more like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's probably the whole exhortation, but in the grammar it kind of got moved around. So what does this mean for the corporate life of our body? Right here. Do we speak well of others in a way that builds them up? Or... Do we find ourselves in conversation where gossip is regularly happening? Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to run away from a conversation. If it is not God-honoring, just turn around and leave. Flee that temptation. We would all rather have a handful of close friends that will speak the truth in love and not gossip than a room full of friends who will discuss one another's lives or church business in a way that is not God-honoring. At the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves individually, does our conversation build up the body of Christ or tear down the body of Christ? Paul tells us, you were sealed for the day of redemption through the Holy Spirit, so unwholesome talk should not characterize a follower of Jesus. More than that, it is a disastrous witness to a lost world. When they see brothers and sisters who claim or who are followers of Christ speaking in a way that is not encouraging and uplifting. I'm haunted, and I say haunted, by these words of Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 36. He says, I tell you, 
on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every conversation that I've been involved in that is not characterized by building people up, that is not characterized by holiness and righteousness, I will be held accountable for that. You will be held accountable for that. So let's watch our mouths. Watch your comments on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever other platforms are out there. I've lost track. Somehow I think we have forgotten or we don't think that the things that we type with our fingers mean the same thing as if we say it with our mouth. That is a lie. That is a distortion of the truth. The unholy, hateful things that we spew on social media, it might not feel like you're doing it face-to-face, but in God's eyes, it's absolutely no different. We will be held accountable for every careless word that we spoke and every careless push on the keyboard that we make. Why do we do this? What's the why behind this one? Paul says that it may give grace to those who hear. This is to be understood in the context of the body of Christ. We build up to help the body. One commentator said, the body of believers has many lacks or many needs and beneficial words contribute to their individual growth and enable them to fill up that lack or need among them. So when we build up, we are giving grace to the body of Christ. And then number five, guard your heart. This final exhortation is really about anger again. And he lists out five negative attributes. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. Now all five of these attributes are characterized really alongside of speech. These are all things that happen while you are communicating. Paul is listing out all of these different attributes. And they're not really supposed to be understood in some sort of progression. They're really just five ways that our speech can turn into anger. Clamor would be a really loud scream. Slander is to speak against someone in a way that would harm their reputation. Malice is strong dislike with an implication that you dislike somebody so much that you want to hurt them. We're not talking about just not getting along with somebody. We're talking about having such strong hatreds towards someone that you want to punch them in the face, essentially. That's what malice is. Instead, Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving towards one another. That's what the church is supposed to be. Tender-hearted, kind, forgiving one another. That's what the world needs to see. That's what the world needs. They need to see Christians that are tender-hearted and kind and forgiving one another and modeling forgiveness. Then Paul closes with the final why in this passage. And in many ways, it's the most important why. As God in Christ forgave you. 
Brothers and sisters, why do we avoid, do we strive to not behave in any of the ways that Paul talks about here? We do it because God forgave us. He sent his son for us to die the death that we deserve for our sin. And, by the way, we have all been guilty of all of these behaviors, and yet God forgave us through his Son. Anyone that is in Christ here this morning, you have repented of your sin, you have believed in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and you have been forgiven of all of the negative attributes that we have already talked about here today. Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to remember That ultimately, the reason we avoid all of these behaviors is because God in Christ forgave us. And because he forgave us, we should live with overwhelming joy and freedom to please the one who gave his life for us. And if you're not in Christ today, I want you to know that these characteristics that Paul described, they still describe you. And apart from the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for your sin, you will never receive forgiveness for those sins. It's only through repenting of your sin and believing in the gospel. Trust that Christ has died for all of the sins that you have committed in your present state, in your past state, and in your future state. And cling to the cross. And enter in to the greatest family, the body of Christ, where we can hold one another accountable, love one another, encourage one another, and one day be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you do and all that you are. As we move into this time of communion I ask and pray that you would help us to remember what it is that you did for us on the cross. This meal is a daily reminder of your sacrifice. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.